So one of the favorite things that I get to do in, uh, in my ministry, so to speak, is in addition to getting to coach and getting to write is getting to fill in for, for pastors to give them a week or two off. Because having been involved in the in, in church world for a while, and if you've been involved and you know what happens behind the scenes, then you know the, the expectations on a pastor sometimes make it hard to rest. And so I'm just, I always get excited that Anthony has the wisdom uh, to take time to rest, to be with his family, to connect with God, and uh, to just have a, a time of sabbatical. So uh, just as Abe said, uh, in the next couple weeks, take time to pray for him and his family. Because uh, it a, it's a, becomes a long ministry year, and it gets exhausting, and, uh, and we want him to, to be around for the, for the long haul and to, to lead very well. So I'm coming over and I've got a series for you uh, for the next couple weeks. It's called Calm Artist. And we're going to look at three things that will, uh, that will steal your joy and rob you of confidence in Christ. So the word calm artist, that might look a little weird. It's, a, it's an attempt to be clever because each of the three things starts with the letter C-O-M. So today we are going to talk about comparison and, and how it uh, kind of destroys and devastates our lives. And, and next week we're gonna talk about competition. And then the third week uh, I'm gonna save as a, I guess it's not a mystery because it's right there. So I can't be mysterious, complacence. So if you don't know what that word means come back in come back in a couple weeks i didn't know what it meant until until i did a google search to find another word that started with com so it's very 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 exciting so before the great depression okay long ago none of us were really around then but before the great depression advertising looked a lot different than it did today it was after this time when the markets crashed and there was so much poverty and there was so much need that advertising took on a new direction. Before the Great Depression, when a product was being advertised for, you were going to be told about the product. That was going to be the essence of, of what you were going to hear or what you were going to see. But after the Great Depression, because people were holding on to their resources more, advertising became uh, more aligned with why do you need the project or the product. So now it was, a, it was about creating this sense of maybe desperation or this sense of you're incomplete if you do not have whatever it is that we're, we're advertising for. So as we see, as we're used to on TV and on the internet and, uh, and everywhere else, advertising is image-based, right? We see happy people who are using the product and then we think about ourselves and our lives and we're not as happy as clearly that person drinking the can of soda is. And so we, we, we go, we're, we're tempted to buy those things. So there is an image that is created for us that, that we, are, uh, we feel like we need to con conform to. So wholeness is available, completeness is available if I just purchase uh, this product. Okay, so advertising is made to create in us a deficit. And what it does is it gets us to compare. Okay, whether consciously or unconsciously, we compare our situation, our status, our circumstances, what's going on with what we, what we see on TV, and we feel the need to have something better. So as we're entering into talking about the, the first of our, the three things that are going to steal and rob from us, I just invite you to, to think about this. How many times do you compare yourself to something else each day? 
I mean, it could be when you, you get onto Facebook to see what everybody else in the, in the world or your world is doing, and you see all the, the fun things or the new things that people are doing, and all of a sudden, instead of feeling good about yourself and your life, you feel distraught because you're not apparently having as much fun as all the people that are, are at the beach in some tropical location while you're, you're working very hard in, in Port Orange. But think of how you compare the way you dress to, to how other people dress. And, and how maybe you long to be more stylish, or uh, I rock my style, and I know that, so that's not necessarily uh, my point of comparison, but think about how we're tempted to compare how we, how we eat to how other people eat, and how that sometimes brings us a sense of shame when you're holding the bag of Doritos and you're looking on Instagram and somebody's got celery and they're talking about their, their organic diet. Uh, when you think about how you compare success and, and how much money is in your bank account uh, or the level of happiness that you're experiencing, there is comparison open and available to us every minute uh, of every day. And as I said a moment ago, it robs us. It steals from us enjoyment, contentment, and an appreciation for the, for, the, for the life we have. In fact, I've noticed in my, my coaching and my talking to married couples, nothing affects a marriage more than comparisons. Right? I, I've not yet made this mistake. I'm not, I, I, I've still got plenty of time in my marriage. I'm sure I might do this, but I have never said uh, something to the effect of, hey, that's not the way my mom would do it. Right? So there's a comparison. You've, I, I, when I do say that at some point, okay, because I'm going to mess up, uh, you're putting the comparison that there is a deficit in your spouse. One thing that I did do though, because I'm always, I'm always forthright with you, vulnerable. I, I show you all my weaknesses so that you can say, at least I'm not as bad as Perkins, <laughs> is I have made the mistake in the past of comparing my wife to other wives, right? Other wives that I deem to be more spiritual or flashier or, or in some other way. And so what that does in me is it, it creates a sense of, man, if, if only, I had it, uh, only I had it a little better. You know, we get, we get a little sense of depression. And then when you verbalize that to your wife, uh, my wife, or your husband, or your wife, how, whoever you're doing this to, it puts a weight on them, right? It's a burden that they have to bear when you, when you compare them to someone else. And all of this is so that we get some improved sense of who we are. So what I want you to remember as we're going through today, as we're talking about comparison and its, its opposite that we hope to live in when we're in Christ, is that comparison is a thief. Okay, It steals from us. We have this false sense of self, this false sense of wholeness or value, whatever you want to call it, however it makes it easier for you to think about. We have this false identity that's, that's based on success. And what, what comparison does is it steals your joy. Comparison steals creativity. Uh, in, in, the mar in our marriages, in our relationships, it steals intimacy. It's hard to get close to someone when you feel like you're being compared to, to some standard you can never measure up to. I have a, I have a friend who, who is an artist, a, a new and, and growing artist, likes to, to paint. And, and we were setting up for an event, and, and she was talking to me about, about how she loved to paint. And, and her face lit up, and she was so excited, filled with such energy and passion for, for what she was learning and how she was painting. It was just bringing this great sense of life to her. But what she confessed to me was that she could not uh, show her art to anyone. 
because she was comparing herself uh, to, to other artists. So anytime she showed somebody artists, she, she was filled with this sense of, I'm not good enough. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a deficit. And so it filled her, this thing that would, would give her life when she was doing it, then filled her with this sense of shame because she was comparing herself. So I want to make sure that you understand that this idea of comparison is grounded biblically and, and its, its failings are biblical. So we're going to start, we're going to go through the Bible, we're going to look at some examples of what not to do. And we're going to start way back in Genesis, first book of the Bible, uh, and we're going to talk about a, a pair of brothers named Cain and Abel. Okay, Cain and Abel, they were, they were born to, to Adam and Eve. And if you, do, if you don't know the story, here is the gist of the story. God was, must have been present because he had this standard for an offering he wanted from Cain and Abel. And so we are told that when, when one time when they brought their offerings, Cain, he brought fruit and he brought vegetables and he laid it before God. And Abel brought, uh, brought an offering of, of animal sacrifice to God. And we are told that God was pleased with what Abel brought and he was disappointed with what, what Cain brought. And so as a result of this, Instead of, instead of looking at his own behavior and, and his disobedience and not meeting the, whatever standard he, he was told about, what he did is he compared his affirmation to the, or his lack of affirmation to the affirmation Abel got. And he became angry. So comparison stole his, his happiness, his, his joy, his, his, his realization of, of his productivity, his closeness to God, because he's apparently in communication with God. And what he did is he, he murdered his brother. So the, the fruit of comparison in, in Cain's life is that it produced envy. He didn't get the sense of accomplishment that his brother got. He didn't get the sense of acceptance that his brother got. And so he was envious. And, and, and envy does nothing but tear down, right? When, when, when we're envious of somebody, when somebody has something more than we have, our first impulse is not necessarily good for them, right? When, when our friend, maybe they, they, if they win the lottery, I, I doubt you might say these words, but you're not feeling good for them. I hope they get more. I want to see them succeed, right? Instead, we say, I deserve it. Why you and not me? Now, maybe this is not your reaction. I might be the least spiritual person in the room, and I'm fully willing to admit that. So you're getting an insight into to what, I, what I struggle with. And so envy tears down, right? That person's not worthy of that promotion. That person didn't study as much as I did, and they got, they got a better grade or a better result on whatever they were doing. And it leads us to, to gossip and to talk about, and it fractures relationships and, 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 and things like that. Just with Cain and Abel. Okay? Cain murdered his brother because of this. And here's the thing about envy and about comparison. These are sins that we don't take seriously. Right? Envy is called a sin in many places in the Bible. That is not supposed to be how we enter into our relationships. But it's, it's a sin that we overlook. In fact, it's a sin that we have made a virtue out of. Right? Because when, when I see a bigger house and I want a bigger house, we say, okay, that's going to make me work harder so that I can get this thing that, that I'm envied in something else. And, and so then we forget that this, the envying and comparison, this is a symptom 
of an identity that is, that is rooted in the wrong things. So we accept this sin as part of our lives and just part of what we have to deal with rather than it being a symptom. And what envy will do, what comparison will do is it will, it will master you and you are going to work very hard to, to get the things that you are envious of or the things that you think are being held from you. And so instead of, instead of unity in the body, there is strife and there is friction in, in whatever relationship. The next example, okay, so we're going we're gonna to fast forward a few chapters in, in the book of Genesis, or from the book of Genesis to Exodus, and I'm just going to read a verse. It's going to be on the screen from Exodus chapter 16, but just so that you know the context, okay, of what Exodus is about. Okay, the, the Israelites, God's people, the, the, the children of, of Father Abraham, they were enslaved in Egypt, and they had been there for 400 years, and they had been crying out to God, and they didn't understand why they weren't being heard, and, and so finally, after 400 years, uh, God raises up Moses, and there's the 10 plagues, and Pharaoh releases them, and, and he says, just get out of here. I want all these bad things to stop happening, and the, the Israelites walk as free people out of Egypt, and they cross the, 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 they, they cross the, the Red Sea, which has, been, which has been parted by God. So God did all these miraculous things for them. They saw the activity and the work of God all around them, and you would think, gosh, if God would just part the, the, the river so I didn't have to go over the bridge to get to the beach. I could just cross on dry land. I'd never forget the work of God in my life, right? So here's what the Israelites said after they crossed the, crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and they're on the other side. They're in the desert. They're, they're walking toward the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And here's what they said. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, right? There's gratitude for you right? I'd rather be a slave than have to be sweating in the desert walking to the promised land. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. So there's the comparison, right? I, I'm walking, I'm hot, I'm thirsty, and I get that that's not great, but now I'm making this false comparison back to, to when I was enslaved, that that was really the good times. Gratitude. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. See, the Israelites were comparing to the past. They had created this glamorized vision of what life was like for, for them in Egypt. And, and what happened is it produced in them this lack of trust. God had finally answered their prayer. God had done all these miraculous things that were, were evident to everyone, so evident that, that they were kicked out of Egypt so, that, so God would stop doing these things uh, on their behalf. Comparison produces in us a sense of entitlement. Right? The Israelites felt like, okay, I, I am entitled to good things because, because we're followers of God. So they had this dissatisfaction with what God had given He'd given them freedom. They had this dissatisfaction with the pace that these things were coming to them. Hey, they had to make a little bit of a long walk across the desert, granted, but the, the, they were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. They knew this. This wasn't a mystery to them. They were just impatient. And that's what comparison does for us. 
instead of instead of working hard and being focused and being mindful of our, our present context comparison says i want that i want the promotion now i want the intimate marriage now i want kids now i want i want all these things that i want and i want them i want them now and and what's more i deserve them see you're always living in comparison you're always going to want more you're always going to look to the future and you're going to miss the things uh, of the present. Because life will be better when I get a new car. Life will be better when I'm married. Life will be better when I have the job that I want or I'm living in the place that I want or I have the clothes that I want or whatever it is that, that you struggle with. And it's different for all of us. And so we miss the moment and we overlook God working in us now. God's involved in our every moment, but when all we're doing is looking for some future and better time, we miss what God is doing right now, just like the Israelites did. They didn't trust. They missed what he was doing, how he was forming them. And there was a, if you read Exodus, it's fun. There was a huge consequence for their lack of trust in God. Continuing on, we're going to go New Testament now, and we're going to go to the book of Luke. This is chapter 18. And Jesus is sharing this, this story with, with the people that he was teaching. And, and he's talking about uh, two, pe two people. And in particular, we're going to look at what, what he says about the, 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 one, the person who was supposed to be more spiritual. And he says this, the Pharisee, okay, spiritual leader of, of Israel, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Comparison robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this tax collector right here because I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Okay, that's nice. That's a good attitude for a spiritual leader. At least I'm not like this dude right here. Okay, this is the really bad one. Hence, I am the really good one. I, I wanted to do this example because I want to, you to understand that, that comparison is not just external stuff. It's not just what we wear and what we eat and who we hang out with and what we're driving and where we work and where we live and all of that. But comparison is spiritual, too. And I, and I think what we get tempted to do is when we're comparing to the outside, okay, when we're comparing the external stuff, we tend to, we tend to compare up. Right? We tend to compare what I don't have and what I want. And, I, and life would be what, better if I have these things. But when we're comparing ourselves spiritually, we compare down. Right. We, we say, OK, OK, I'm not as bad as as Hitler. Right. I, I, I'm sure you've heard somebody say that. Right. OK. If there is a low rung of comparison that you can make, there it is right there. But you don't you don't tend to hear people say, uh, uh, man, uh, Mother Teresa's way below me. Right. You compare to, to low. And that's what this Pharisee is doing. He's comparing himself to somebody that in his eyes was below him on the, the spiritual, spiritual totem pole. And so we say, at least I'm not as bad as that person. So I'm good. I'm closer to God because I'm not as bad as that person. Or I am, I'm more generous than the, this other person. So again, I'm closer to God. I'm more spiritual. Uh, I am, I'm a more godly person. But the thing about these comparisons is they're arbitrary. We create these uh, these lines. God is not created at the, any line that says just get to here and you're okay. OK, 
Okay, that's, that's not how our spiritual life works at all. And what comparison does is comparison produces in us pride. Pride is the idea that I've got to take care of myself. It's all about me. It's about how hard I work. It's about my results. And that's where, that's where my worth comes from. Comparison makes us very self-focused. We look at ourselves as the center of everything uh, that is going on. And so when there's a standard of righteousness, okay, I become that standard. Okay? I do this driving. I think I've mentioned this to you before. I still struggle with driving. I'm probably always going to struggle with driving. I am the best driver on earth. I just want you to know that right now. Okay, so when people pull in front of me or they don't use their blinker, I am the standard that I, I compare myself to other people. Okay, that, that's just, you know, kind of a fun, trivial kind of example. But that's what we do spiritually, right? I pray, I pray every morning, right? Not saying that I actually do. That's my example. But I, I, I like to pray every morning. But if you did, you say, okay, I pray every morning. You don't. Hence, God loves me more. Or I've, I, I've, read, I've read my Bible for an hour every day. So now it becomes about the amount of time that I've put into this. Or I've studied my Bible. I know all of the, the Greek and I know all of the Hebrew words, so I am closer. So we do these, these comparisons. And again, those are arbitrary lines. God, God never says memorize the, memorize the Bible in Greek and then you, you, you're more spiritual than somebody else. Okay? We, we ignore what God says for us. So the last the last example that I'm going to, going to do, and then we're going to talk about the good part, how we are in Christ, is from the Ten Commandments. Okay, so we're going back again to Exodus chapter 20, from the Ten Commandments. Okay, now remember this about the Ten Commandments. We like to think the Ten Commandments are the list of ways we're supposed to, we're supposed to behave, and if I just do those things, we're right as rain. But what the Ten Commandments are is they are symptoms. Okay, these are supposed to be the things that when you see these things in your life, Okay, that, that you know that there is a problem in your relationship between you and God. So if you're, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're not honoring your parents, if you've got other gods instead, instead of God, these are bad symptoms and you need to get back on, on the narrow path. And this is the, 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 the last of the commandments and it says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When you're coveting, that is a comparison that creates an, a, a desire in you to have what belongs to others. So coveting is just a comparison, and it's a comparison that, that you act on. And so notice the things in this commandment that we're told to not covet. It says, don't covet your neighbor's house. Okay. So don't covet somebody else's way of life. Okay. Be present in the way that, that you're living your life, in the life that God has given you. He is, he is in control. He sustains all things. So it doesn't escape his notice, your situation or your circumstance. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or his, his, his male or female servants. So don't, don't covet somebody else's relationships. Don't compare to, to what the, the number of relationships or the quality of relationships or who, the, who they're related to. Lastly, don't covet anything. Don't covet any of the stuff. The, these bring about in us spiritual death. 
And that, that and that's what God is trying to get us to avoid. And so we get held captive by our thoughts when we, when we compare. And so when we compare, we get this mindset of discontent. Right? I, and I know this is true of me. Okay, I'm discontent with what I have. I want something new. I want something better. Or we get a mindset of scarcity. Scarcity is this attitude that I've got to hang on so tightly to what I have because I don't know if I'm getting any more or if it's going to ever be enough. And so that precludes us from being a generous people that, that we are called to be. Or we live in this mindset of fear because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're ever going to get or become the things that we compare, compare ourselves to. And so what this commandment, what this 10th commandment tells us is that comparison creates a break in integrity. Okay, God's intent in our lives, okay, as you're following Christ, as you're growing, his, his want for you is consistency. That you are the same inside and, and out. So, so your external behaviors, your decisions, the way you relate to others is going to be founded and based on consistency of who you are in Christ. But comparison pulls us from that path. And what we tend to do is we tend to conform to others' images of what success and what goodness and wholeness and things like that look like. And so it corrupts our spirituality. And so the power of sin in us, why does sin have such power? Why does disobedience, uh, why, why, does it, why does it tempt us so? is because the power of sin is to, is to create a sense of worth based on yourself. So when, when you are putting something else ahead of God, and I repeat these same things because these are the common temptations, whether it's money or a relationship or whether it's a particular circumstance or it's a, it's, it's a result that you want, whatever it is, we are going to act to achieve those things, and, and, and that pulls us from finding our wholeness and who we are and why we matter uh, in God's eyes. So we, we, we hate and we steal and we murder and we lack generosity and we withhold inf uh, intimacy, and we do all this because comparison is a thief. But the good news is this. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. The opposite of comparison is contentment. And so if, if, uh, I'm going to read uh, Philippians chapter 4. I've printed it in large print because my eyes are getting very bad. So that's why I'm not opening up a Bible. Okay, so this just says Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 13. And before I read this, this was written by Paul. And if you don't know who Paul was, Paul was, Paul was a guy, he had, this, he had this miraculous encounter with Jesus Okay, Paul originally was persecuting the church, he was murdering Christians, and he was doing what he thought God wanted him to do. He has this encounter with Jesus, who blinds him and, and, then, and, and makes Paul part of the church. And his, Paul's entry into the church was to, to, to have his sight given back to him by, by somebody that he would have killed. He would have never been in that person's household before, the, before this encounter. And so, here's what Paul writes says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, the amazing thing about this passage is Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. He wrote it while he was in prison. So while he's in prison, you would think Paul's mindset would be, I am working hard for Jesus. I'm planting churches all throughout uh, Asia and Europe. I deserve to not be in prison. I deserve to be successful. I deserve to have the resources I need to accomplish this mission. But none of that was true. And what, what Paul does is he encourages the Philippian church to stand firm in their faith in the face of the persecution they were receiving. That they needed to live in unity. And that came from their contentment, as he says in the, the last verse of that passage. So go, going just one at a time, it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So it starts off, he's, re, he, he's praising, he's giving thanks to God, even though he's in prison, even though he doesn't have what he needs. And, and this is the opposite. So Paul's living in contentment. This is the opposite of what we do. When we don't have what we need, we tend to accuse, we tend to blame, we tend to, we tend to find a scapegoat so that we, we, can, we, can, uh, we can feel less pressure. Paul didn't do that. Paul had no anger to, to these people that hadn't, uh, hadn't funded him or hadn't given him what, what they had promised. And, and I don't know about you, but when I, what I do is when I don't have what I need, I tend to, I tend to get angry. Because if I don't get angry, I feel like the, the person who has, has failed me is going to feel like they've gotten away with it. Right? If I don't get angry, then they're, they're going to just keep doing it to me and they're going to keep, keep, keep using me. So I do the opposite a lot of times of what Paul does. He was living in contentment. So contentment helps you see clearly. Okay? Contentment allows you to see the needs of others. Contentment helps you see the circumstance that somebody else is living in. It helps you look outward instead of using yourself uh, as the, the center. The, the, the Hebrew people called this having a good eye. And what, what Paul did is he realized the Philippian church was going through some persecution. They were not physically able to meet the needs of Paul. So rather than blaming them, Paul assumed the best in them when he was, when he was writing to them. And this is... This is this is humility. That's what contentment is. Contentment is humility. It's not considering yourself as uh, considering yourself more than you consider others. The next verse, 11, says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned, key word, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Right? So, I don't know about you, but when, when I don't have the $5 I need to, to go out to lunch or, or, or I have to, I have to skip a meal or my circumstances are, are, are somewhere where I don't want them, I, I, I become off balance, right? I, I, when I don't get what I want, uh, I tend to get, like I said before, angry or I feel slighted in, in some way. And then I look to God and say, where are you? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm faithful. I'm doing the things that you said. The least that could happen is I could, I could go through the day Without, without feeling bad or feeling distraught or feeling, uh, feeling scared or, or in fear. Contentment allows you to believe that God is just and right, even when the circumstances aren't what, what you want. And that's what faith is. 
Faith is believing that God has, has your back, that he has your best interests in heart, even, even when your circumstances might seem opposite. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying right here. Contentment is learned. It's formed in us. God uses the circumstances of our lives, the deficits that we feel, to form in us a sense of, of contentment. We, re, we renew our mind. And so how did Paul learn? Paul, I don't know if you know this about him, he made tents. Okay? Paul made tents as a way to sustain his ministry. He didn't, he didn't always ask churches to give him an offering or to pay him a salary. Sometimes they did, but he made tents. And so I'm sure there were times when he wasn't physically able to make a tent, like when he's in jail, or when he didn't have the resources to make a tent, or when he didn't have people to buy his tents. And so he learned his contentment by going without in all of these situations. So our circumstances are what God is using to, to, to teach us and change us. We're told to give thanks in all circumstances, not give thanks not give thanks for bad things that happen like we're, we're like we want to, to be punished, but to give thanks because God is active and he's working and he's forming us and he wants us to, to, to be more like Christ. In verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. Okay, And in, uh, in the Greek that says, I know what it is to have almost nothing. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Now, I guess that all of us probably have, uh, we're, we're, we find it easy to be content when we have the full stomach, right? When, when, when everything's going well, when I've got enough money in the bank, when, when uh, I've got enough affirmation at, at work, when, when my wife is treating me lovingly or, or husband, whatever the case may be, uh, I find it very easy to be content. But it's a lot harder when I don't have what I want. And Paul, Paul says he knows, the, he knows the secret, and we like secrets. And the good news is we all live in this secret right now. So Paul knows what it's like to live with no respect, and he knows what it's like to live with plenty of respect. He knows what it's like to live with no food and plenty of food. He knows what it's like to sleep in the rain and to sleep in a nice soft bed. He knows what it's like to live in a community of people and to be alone in walking alone in the world. Paul knows what it's like to have plenty, and he knows what it's like to have almost nothing. And that doesn't change anything for him. Contentment is free from circumstance. How Paul saw himself, how we should see ourselves, is, is independent of, of what is going around, on around us. We are loved. We are chosen. We, 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 are, we, have, a, we have an eternal destiny. And, and nothing that goes on around us changes those things. The 13th verse, this is the fun one, says this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, I don't have a lot of things that I'm fussy about. I don't have a whole lot of pet peeves, but this verse right here is one of my pet peeves. It is the most misused verse in, in I think, in all of scripture. In fact, this morning, 
I went on Instagram because I always want to make sure the things that I tell you are true. And, and if you don't know what Instagram is, it's a place to post pictures of yourself doing fun things or sunsets. And in fact, I posted a sunrise this morning because I'm hip and cool and all that sort of stuff. But you post and you can you can tag your, your, your posts so that people can find them. And there are over 50,000 recent posts with the, with the tag Philippians 413. And do you know what almost all those posts, all those pictures are? People's abs, okay? People's abs, their workout photos. And they, they, you read them, they say, uh, ab day. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. Arr! Right? Man, the, the, the word of the day in my house, I have a 16-year-old daughter, is triggered. That triggered me. Okay, I was, I was unnerved. He saw a big post that says, nothing is impossible. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Oh, yes. I saw somebody climbing a mountain and hanging from the top of the mountain, which you should not do, okay? <laughs> and, and it said, tag Philippians 4.13 because we've, we've used this verse as a mantra to give us the desires to feed our false self. That's what we've made it about. That God gives me, God gives me power to do the things that I want. So if I want rock hard abs, or if I want to climb a mountain, or if I need to, if I need to pass this test, or if I got to get a promotion at work, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it has nothing to do with that. This verse doesn't say you can be anything you want. This verse doesn't say that you can do anything that you want. It has nothing to do with what you want. I got it out of me. Thank you. Thank you for letting me. What this verse is saying is it's not about God helping you achieve your goals. What this verse, I can do all, all this through Christ who gives me strength, is about understanding that you are more than your success or your lack. You are more than your appreciation or your lack of appreciation. You are more than what your bank account says or what it doesn't say. It's, you are more than the conflict you might be experiencing in your marriage or the lack of conflict in, in your marriage. You're not defined by any of these things. In fact, the better translation of this verse, uh, because I, I was so pet peeved about this, I did a lot of looking around about this, it's, it should say this. The beginning of it should say, I have strength in all things. I have strength to bear them. I have strength to walk the path that God has me on, that he's forming me. I have strength to bear the consequence and the fruit of my brokenness as I am conformed in the image of Christ. I have the strength to bear the temptations of having plenty or the desolation of not having enough. I have the strength to obey. And then the second half is, in the one strengthening me. I have strength in all things, in the one strengthening me. It's not our strength. It's Christ on display in us, being active in us, whatever the circumstance is. So when we have plenty, we get the opportunity to be generous and we get the opportunity to invite people in and share that. When we have lack, we get the opportunity to bear it and show the goodness of God, even when our circumstances are not what the world would say is, is success. And this produces in us what's called perseverance. The ability to get through, to muddle through this world because it's a shadow of what is coming up in, in the next world. And the point to this verse is that contentment's foundation 
is in Christ. The, the, the most famous psalm, probably most of us know the opening lines of Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. When our life is centered in Christ, then because I am defined by his love for me, by his coming to this world to, to make a way for me, that, that nothing else matters, nothing else defines me, nothing else has the ability to hold me, me captive, he is our satisfaction not our roles or our relationships and our results. Paul writes this to, to, uh, to, to one of his, the, the people that was following him. He was training to be, to be a pastor. To Timothy, Paul writes this, godliness with contentment is great gain. See, godliness is the fear and love of God. It's where we are rooted. It's how we see ourselves. And that is great gain. Being great in the kingdom of God is godliness with contentment. Our ability to be led by the shepherd. And both of these things go hand in hand. You can't separate one, without, uh, one from the other. Greatness in the kingdom is being content. So normally at the end of a message, I say, uh, let us all pray. And, and, and then I pray a conversational prayer. And, and then uh, the band comes up. But what I, what I decide to do this time is uh, in, in the Episcopal Book of Prayer, it's actually a really good, a really good book to guide you in your, your prayer or meditation if you, if you need something. I found a prayer that I wanted us to read together. It's about asking God to, to help us be content in our day and our circumstance and to understand that he is in, in charge uh, of all of it. Because when you leave here today, if this message has had any impact on you, and maybe you spent the whole time comparing me to somebody else, that's okay, no big deal. <laughs> But the second you leave here, you are going to be struck by the comparisons that the world is going to throw at you. Okay, so let's read this prayer together. It's going to be on the screen. I don't really know how to start this, so I'm going to say, when I say the word three, we're going to start reading this together. Okay, so one, two, three. In particular, we implore thy grace and protection for the ensuing day. Grant us patience under any afflictions thou shalt see fit to lay on us, and minds always contented with our present condition. Give us grace to be just and upright in all our dealings, quiet and peaceable, full of compassion, and ready to do good to all men. According to our abilities and opportunities, direct us in all our ways, Defend us from all dangers and adversities, and be graciously pleased to take us and all things belonging to us under thy fatherly care and protection. These things, and whatever else thou shalt see necessary and convenient to us, we humbly beg through the merits and mediation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. See you next week.